Welcome to the Humans of Nutrition podcast brought to you by Nutrition Talent, a consultancy and recruitment company specialising in the provision of nutrition expertise. I'm Dr Danielle McCarthy. And I'm Anna Wheeler. This podcast delves into the world of nutrition to help unlock ideas and collaborative action so that everyone can thrive. We are excited to have an international guest today, welcoming Barbara Riss, a dietitian from the US, to this episode of the Humans of Nutrition podcast. Barbara brings experience running a food and health focused marketing communications consultancy called Market RD, where she's worked on all sorts of things from avocado to soya beans to regenerative salmon farming. She is also a retail health columnist for the Progressive Grocer and Today's Dietitian magazine and has previously worked for US supermarket chain where she established a symposium which ran for eight years in the US sharing a similar ambition as to that we have at Nutrition Talent to elevate the value of qualified nutrition experts working in the food industry. We are really excited to discuss with Barbara today the similarities and differences of working in the nutrition world from the UK versus the US. So, Barb, th- welcome to the Humans of Nutrition podcast. You are our first international guest, as Danielle said, obviously also our first American guest. So we're, we're delighted to have you here. So thanks very much for joining us. I am so flattered to be here. And wow, the pressure, the first American <laughs> registered dietitian nutritionist to be on the, pr- the program. I hope I can make my colleagues proud. Oh, of course you can. Thank of course you, you can. Um, so obviously you're, you're ringing in from the States. It's the beginning of the day for, for you and the end of the day for us. So uh, thank you for getting up early to speak to us. We really appreciate that. Um, but we will kick off with our first question. Um, and obviously Danielle's given us a little bit of an insight, but I'd love just to ask if you could explain a little bit more about your very interesting and diverse career journey and what do you do now? Wow. Well, um, I have had a very circuitous career. I feel like they've all added up to where I am now. But um, I I started my career in Boston, Massachusetts. So I went to graduate school in Boston. And I I started my career in public health, working with the school meal programs, the federally funded school meal programs. Um, At the time, uh, the U.S. government was... uh, trying to implement nutrition standards for all of the meal programs. So we have a breakfast and a lunch program uh, and then some other forms of school meal programs. So I started in public health, which I feel like is a great foundation for any retail career. And after uh, working in public health uh, for the school meal programs for about five years, um, like life would have it, I I needed a little break. I took a job. I played tennis in college and I was offered a a summer teaching uh, tennis position, which I'm a massive tennis fan, Barb. We we could do another separate podcast all about tennis, but I think Danielle might get bored. So maybe we'll do that offline. Oh, we definitely have a needed person then. So I took this summer job um, doing something that I love. And that led to uh, an interim head coaching position at a local university in Boston. Now, Boston has probably 50 colleges and universities within a 20-mile radius. It's very densely populated with uh, students. And so that reignited my passion for sports nutrition. Um, And I actually studied exercise physiology in grad school. And so um, I... After taking the position, the interim head coaching position, 
I had talked to the athletic director and said, hey, I really think I want to do this. Would you consider me for the for the full-time, you know, forever position? And she said, oh, no, the only reason, well, not the only reason, obviously I was a decent tennis player and it was an all-women's college, so it was a good role model. But the only reason I hired you is because you're also a registered dietitian nutritionist. <laughs> so that really started my career uh, in sports nutrition. And so I started working for Wellesley College uh, doing that. And in my first year of coaching, many of the other colleges that we competed against, uh, you know, had called back to Wellesley and said, hey, could we borrow your, your nutritionist to speak to our athletes? And that, and the athletic director really was a great mentor and said, hey, uh, you certainly can serve these other colleges and universities and charge them what you're worth. And so that propelled me into starting a private practice, uh, mm -hmm. consulting business. Mostly I was, you know, riding, I was actually riding my bicycle around Boston as a, you know, very compact city. So I was riding uh, to the different colleges and universities and and hosting office hours and doing presentations for all these college athletes. And um, I started, uh, formalized my practice called Neighborhood Nutrition. And that that led to also doing individual counseling, mostly sports nutrition focused. Uh, and then of course that evolved, not of course, but I mean, anyone that works in sports nutrition deals with eating disorders. So my practice really became focused on eating disorder uh, treatment and then after uh, be building a name for myself in the Boston area, I was offered a position at Harvard University to work as their campus nutritionist and wow. slash sports nutritionist. And um, I turned that position down a couple of times and then was offered a deal I couldn't, I couldn't refuse. It was a full-time appointment and I only had to work I think it was 20 hours a week or 17 and a half hours a week. So I worked two and a half days. And then in the off days, I was riding my bicycle over to these different colleges, doing some consulting, running my private practice, seeing patients. And then, okay, so that's phase one. And then phase two, uh, while I was providing education and sports nutrition for a, a good eight years, I used to bring my clients, I used to meet them in the supermarket where they would shop because people always wanted to know what was in my refrigerator. And uh, I said, well, it doesn't really matter what's in my fridge. Let's go to the supermarket. There's one a block away and there were multiple different var varieties of wherever a person would shop and use this supermarket as a uh, location to educate. And that fueled my passion for in-store education. And then a colleague of mine all the way across the country saw a job post and said, hey, I know you're nuts about supermarkets. You should apply for this job. <laughs> so I sent my resume really as, as on a whim and I got called, I believe it was the next day. I mean, it was, it was a very fast trajectory. Um, and I think that's what happens when you have like Harvard University on your resume. <laughs> yeah, it's got to help, hasn't it? And it really changed my career. I decided that I would move all the way across the country from Boston to Arizona. And it is like moving to planet Mars because it is yeah. a completely different climate. And I uh, started working for a supermarket chain. And I really, before I, I made that move, because my colleagues at Harvard thought I was losing it, 
But really the intention was to have a bigger impact. Here I was working at a, a university with very, you know, a very educated population. And yet they were still coming to me for the same things that everybody deals with. Um, hypertension, high cholesterol, diabetes education, uh, gut, gut issues. And so working for a supermarket, I, I had this idea that I could impact a lot more people. Um, and it was true. When I came and worked out uh, at the supermarket, uh, they immediately gave me space in the uh, weekly circular that reached 2 million customers a week. And people would stop me like, you know, throughout you know, my day, my early days and living here. And they'd say, gosh, you look so familiar. Have I seen you somewhere? <laughs> and I'd say, uh, yeah. Do you get the bashes circular? <laughs> Did you throw it away? Um, cause you know, those are part of the junk mail, right. Um, that come every week. Of course now supermarkets don't even print those anymore, but, um, so it was just a lot bigger audience. And I also, like most dietitians, registered dietitians, nutritionists, and we'll, we'll get to that, uh, why I say RD or RDN, because that's the credential in the United States that we utilize. Um, I, uh, I, I would be able to reach a lot more customers and a lot more people by um, working, working for a supermarket chain. And also, I really wanted to understand how food made it onto the shelves of the local supermarkets. That was very, I was curious about that. And I wanted to understand how grocery stores worked because back in Boston, when I was edu educating clients, they thought that Whole Foods, if they shopped there, that they were automatically going to be healthier. And, you know, we all know this. Uh, your health is not determined by where you shop necessarily, although we can qualify that, but uh, really making the right choices, you can shop almost anywhere and, and have a healthy uh, and eat healthy or eat, eat nutritious foods, I should say, because healthy is defined here in the United States. But um, and, and so uh, I worked for a supermarket, and while I was working at the supermarket chain, I started a conference because I wanted to collaborate with some more supermarket dietitians. And then for the past nine years, I've been working in the food industry, uh, running my own marketing communications agency, but predominantly I've been spending most of my time working for the avocado, the Mexican avocado industry, avocados from Mexico, uh, as their nutrition expert. And it has just been since July, so a mere six months, that I have been uh, in a metamorphosis to, to some degree, trying to figure out what my next steps are. I haven't, I, I, my contract was not renewed. It was an, it's an annual contract that I had for nine years. And so I'm, I'm in this phase of life <laughs> and my career where I'm entering into well, I guess I said fa three phases, but this is actually phase four because phase one was federal school meal programs. Phase two was private practice, sports nutrition. Phase three was retail, actually, and four, I'd say food industry. And then this next phase, I'm, I'm trying to figure out uh, where I'm going to go. Um, I still have a huge interest in retail food and working for brands. Uh, and also, uh, you know, some of the emerging trends, which I think we'll get into in the 
podcast interview what's exciting me and that might be the last question of the the interview here but <laughs> anyway that's a long-winded yeah. interview uh introduction but you can well, see there's a, a lot to unpick there yeah absolutely yeah. and I think it will probably be quite reassuring for some of our listeners in a way to hear that you know at any stage of your career you can you know be reevaluating and thinking about what you want to do next and in a way I guess hopefully it's nice for you to have that time and space to be able to do that and to really think about what it is that you might want to do next and what excites you um so hopefully you know obviously that can be a scary thing but hopefully it might also be an exciting thing of of thinking about what might come next for you yeah and I guess reflecting on what you've said there Barb you know how courageous and inspiring of you that you your leaps through those different phases you can say haven't necessarily been planned but you've followed what you're curious about or what you're really passionate about and I think that's something that as we speak to various people on, on our nutrition talent side with with recruitment and and it's that whole piece of blending where are we curious where do we want to learn more what what fascinates and interests us most and we're so lucky that there tends to be something that we can transition into as nutritionists you know I guess that speaks to the whole system approach and what we need for improvements in public health is there there will be a role and a need I guess it's, it's figuring that out and you know having the confidence to pause and think okay what's next you know like I, I also think that is as inspiring because the alternative is to keep going and going and going and you know we see the rate of burnout we see you know people that are getting used to maybe not being as inspired in their work and yeah so I think that could that could be very helpful for some of our listeners that might be in a similar position to know that it's not just them that is in that that pausing phase and it's an important phase you know it's terrifying (laughs) <laughs> yes, yeah. for sure. I mean, I've had a very uh, successful uh, 25 year career. So uh, the last six months has probably been the slowest in in my career, uh, albeit not it's longer than what I would like. Like I probably would have liked to have jumped into something, you know, consulting. There's always and thanks to you, I've also had some some really fun projects overseas that have been great. But, uh, you know, I'm getting anxious having, having been an entrepreneur and a business owner that, Oh, I want to get things going, chop, chop. Mm. But, uh, but this is also a phase of life where my parents are aging and, you know, coping with that. And, uh, and also some burnout, you know, COVID, I, I've been working at home for 10 years and been on a million airplanes in that time frame. So it's it's not, COVID was not a really big giant reset, but the world reset. So I'm having to adjust to that as well. And I and we can get into a little bit of why I, why I think it's been so challenging these past six months to find an opportunity uh, because people always say to me, how, you know, how could you be applying for a full-time job? <laughs> well, uh, I, I mean, would I say ideally I would like to continue doing consulting, but I also am feeling this urgency that I have a good chunk of time to build up my retirement. And, you know, we don't have, I mean, I think at 65, I can get like health insurance or something from the government, but I'm a far, I'm far away from that. So. You're a long way from that. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Got to bring home the bacon now. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's such a, yeah, an interesting time for you. And I think we'll be be watching and, and waiting to see to see what you might do next but you know something good will come of it I'm, I'm convinced of that and yeah we've been really pleased we've been able to find a few a few projects for you to help us out with as well and so that's been exciting for us to sort of extend our reach overseas as well so you know it's uh, one thing I think we wanted to talk to you about is collaboration and and actually you know going overseas is even more exciting in a way than collaborating with our own within our own countries um but we we mentioned it briefly in the introduction but um it was fascinating to hear that you actually launched uh, a health conference with your retail colleagues um to inspire healthy collaboration between the food industry and retail supermarkets was how it was explained um can you tell us a bit more about that and and the importance of collaboration throughout your career yes i that was definitely a passion project and i i always think of that as a guide for me moving forward like what is what's going to be what's going to be my next passion project mm -hmm. so when i started working at the retail chain again it was like moving to planet mars from boston to phoenix i mean politically it's different geography climate it's it's very different and i didn't have family here like it was it was a bold I'm very proud of myself now in hindsight for being able yeah, to do Yeah, it's very that. brave, very brave thing yeah. to do. Uh, I mean, it's it's a good 2,000 2, or 2,500 miles away. It's, it's, it's far. And mm -hmm. uh, so I moved out here and very quickly uh, being immersed. And I was working for a small regional retailer that had 135 stores throughout the entire state of Arizona, which Arizona is a pretty big state. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry I can't, you know, Americans were notorious for being bad at geography, but I would, I would think the size of Arizona, it's, it's a pretty big state. And uh, so to reach 2 million customers and really understand my, I had a year to prove myself when I took my job. And I had really, the way that I think about it, I had very little to lose when I took the job with the supermarket chain because I continued to run my private practice back in Boston with two dietitians that I hired before I left and ran that remotely for the next five years. So I had an income continuously <laughs> as I was doing this retail experiment. And so very quickly in figuring out how to be a retail dietitian, I knew that there had to be other dietitians out there doing this. And so at the time, and this is going to date me, but but you'll both appreciate this. There were listservs and there was a dietetics listserv. <laughs> and there was one for a specialty group. Uh, we have these dietetic practice groups. I'm sure you have the same thing in the UK. And it was for food and culinary dietetic professionals called FCP. And they had a sub specialty for supermarket. And so I sent out a note to the dietetics listserv, to the FCP listserv, saying, hey, are there other retail dietitians out there? I'd love to talk to you. Uh, does anyone want to meet up? And before I sent that message on the listserv, I had already sketched out an outline of the questions that I had and what I wanted to talk to other dietitians about. So I sent it out and I was, I received a deluge of mm -hmm. comments back from people. Yes, let's talk. Let's, let's get together. Let's. So I very quickly 
uh, planned an in-person meeting, figured, hey, who wouldn't want to come to Phoenix, Arizona or Scottsdale, Arizona? It's sunny and beautiful all year round. Well, maybe not so much in July, but and um, and 20 dietitians came to that initial meeting. And the idea was really to talk about what are you doing? Like, how do you, how, how are you making your program successful? Because my retailer wants it to turn a profit. And as much as I love just providing, you know, free nutrition advice and, and that's good for loyalty and customer engagement, which there is benefits to that, but you have to make it tangible in business. And I recognize that. And so after that initial meeting, uh, and one of the people that was invited was a representative from a nonprofit in Boston that had done a lot of work with Harvard University called Old Ways. And they called me a few months after that initial meeting and said, hey, are you going to do that again? (laughs) And I was like, well, I don't know how I would do it again. And through conversations, they ended up wanting to partner with me. So I found, I say I'm the founder, but it was really because Old Ways was willing to partner with me to host this event, this supermarket dietitian symposium. And it was so fulfilling. Um, I I worked predominantly with one colleague. Her name is Georgia Orcutt. Um, she's retired now, but Georgia and I shared a brain. Georgia was not a, a dietitian, but she really had a strong interest in nutrition. She was a cookbook author uh, in and a foodie in her own right. And we had to fund this thing. We had to create the agenda. And so after a year, we figured out, okay, she was really good at planning the food part of stuff. And I was really good at, uh, I had a whole Rolodex of food uh, sponsors or food industry contacts because they were supporting my program at the retailer I worked for. And um, I also wanted to continuously connect and network with my colleagues. And so I was reaching out to my food industry, potential sponsors for the event, and then I was keeping a pulse on what other dietitians were doing. And the way that we set it up, because it is a nonprofit and we were getting outside funding, we had to, it had to be a nonprofit, you know, situation. So it was an invite only event. So it turned out that for about eight years, we had 50 invitations that uh, was all expenses paid and uh, and I would work on the agenda for the whole year. So the event was usually sometime in, in early March or late February, perfect weather here in, in Arizona. Although we, ha- we hosted it throughout the country. Uh, and uh, then the rest of the year, we'd start planning again, starting in May. I'd fly out to Boston. We'd meet at the Old Ways office and we would start, we'd come up with a theme and then that would guide are uh, sort of filling in the gaps of what the agenda would be. And really my my colleague, uh, Georgia and I, this was so much fun for us. I mean, we of course had our, I'm sure you and Anna, Danielle and Anna, you, you, you know, have banter, but you know, we wanted to make it fun and we wanted these dietitians to participate. And 
I, I will say there was resistance from dietitians that work for some of the very big, larger chains because they were worried about competition. But the whole idea here was not, was first and foremost was about collaborating. We're dietitians, we're health professionals first and foremost, and we're trying to help the public improve their, their eating habits, one shopping cart at a time. And so there is an ethical responsibility first and foremost, and this was not about sharing trade secrets. It, so that was, so first it was about public health, but then it was also like as professionals, that's why we're talking today. Networking is so powerful and, and sharing like being face to face with these other dietitian uh, colleagues, they become your very closest friends and you learn from them just Absolutely. not just professional stuff, but you know, also how do you transition? Like, you know, how, how do you take a break when you're ha having a child or uh, how do you manage, um, you know, asking for a raise and, and all of these things that women professionals, you know, and I'm, I'm very big on the women connecting with other women, not that there's not ma male dietitians, but you know, there's, mm -hmm. there's a lot there. And so the collaboration was a big deal. And you know, I feel like I played a very important role in building very strong relationships between dietitians within the retail industry. Of course, I was like leading it, but you know, there's dietitians that I know now are really good friends because they came to the Old Ways Conference for years and years and years. Yeah, yeah. it's fascinating, Barb. Like I think, you know, in terms of what's happening within the UK and, and, and certainly you know, I can see movements within the States. There's increasing pressure from NGOs and investors and government um, to look at and, and hold industry to account, you know, an industry across the whole kind of food landscape. And I guess in the States, you've had the White House Conference and, you know, the Food as Medicine initiative is kicking off there. You know, the, the time is you know like you're you're ahead in building all of those connections and now it's really rife for wider interest and wider pressure to turn that into measurable impact and I just wonder what your thoughts are and and kind of what's happening in in the US maybe compared to the UK are you seeing the same increase in pressure from government and investors and, and I guess how are industry reacting to that you know what what's your sense of change or, or not change you know I don't want to put words in your mouth there you know I, you know I guess I guess there's there's movement here um certainly a, a huge amount post-covid where the impact of health inequalities was was absolutely exposed it was of course known before but but I guess the the audience and the and the um reception and an awareness of that has increased significantly and nutrition security during the cost of living is is getting the attention it deserves now. So I just wonder if you've got any comments on that um, from yeah, US perspective. I mean, that, that's a very big question. Uh, what What is happening here in the US? I I think, and again, I, I keep a little bit of a pulse of what's happening around the globe. Uh, we would always reserve one or two spots for an international guest to come to Old Ways. So we had, um, I have a colleague from Waitrose that came. Uh, I still keep in touch with her. Uh, Australia um, from Coles. We had representatives from Israel and um, 
you know, I think of um, Wageningen University in, in um, the Netherlands. Uh, so, so we had an international audience. Um, so, of course, I keep track of like the Workforce Nutrition Alliance um, and the uh, there's another organization that uh, now my, my memory's escaping me, but the whole idea of conscious capitalism, it's the, um, oh, I can't think of it, but, but the big food companies like PepsiCo and General Mills and Kellogg's and ConAgra's and M&M Mars, those big giant Nestle, uh, of course, they're global organiza food organizations and they're informed. And so they are making, they, they have probably entire teams that are gauging trends and what's happening and insights. And, and so, yes, they are adjusting their formulations and improving nutritional quality. Uh, however, you know, like in terms of um, ESG and commitments that impact health, I, I feel like it's a bit frustrating here in the United States um, that, yes, we had in 2022, for the first time in 50 years, the White House had a nutrition conference focused on nutrition and health. And, uh, you know, they set up a strategic plan and there's pillars, five pillars that are, are um, you know, focused around food and um, food security issues. And so, so, yeah, there is that structure, but I, I'm in it day to day. I'm in this food world industry day to day, and I don't necessarily feel like the food industry as a whole, the big, big business is, is doing things. But uh, I think what's happening in the United States is there is innovation towards healthier products and consumers are demanding more transparency and healthier ingredients and and local and all that kind of sustainable things, but it's not driven necessarily by the government. And okay. there are, of course, like, you know, under the pillars for the White House conference, um, improving access uh, and affordability of food, that's pillar one. So yeah, they're, they're uh, changing, uh, like during COVID, people that received the SNAP benefit, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, uh, they were unable to buy online groceries because it's an EBT card. You have to put a four-digit code. And so there was it was very clunky. And the only retailer that had, had been enabled at that time was Walmart. And so, uh, you know, yes, since COVID, there's been a lot of movement there. And the White House has, has helped that. And of course, online grocery ordering and delivery is, has become like a fact of life now. So there's a lot more um, access there. But then also in terms of uh, the second pillar is integrate nutrition and health. So that's um, coordinating all these food as medicine, um, uh, which are medically tailored meals, uh, produce prescriptions. And, and what I think might be challenging for someone across the pond to recognize is that our, <laughs> where do I even start? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a big thing to talk about, but, but these food as medicine concepts, which registered dietitians, nutritionists in the United States are, there's conflict, 
conflicts there. Some you'll see, read, like some of my peers, I'll see them write in magazines like, oh, you know, food and food is not medicine. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, <laughs> we got to get on the same page here. Um, food is actually very important when it comes to reducing healthcare uh Costs. I mean, we're exceeding about three trillion dollars here in the United States from from diabetes, heart, hypertension, heart disease, all these things. I mean, these are diet-mediated diseases, diabetes. Um, so yes, food can improve outcomes and lower healthcare costs. So medically tailored meals that are reimbursable by health insurance—that's slowly starting to happen, but. And that's in itself is is fascinating. And you also mentioned food prescription programs. I mean, obviously, in in general, the whole system is so different between the UK Mm -hmm. and the US because we, you know, there are issues with the NHS, but we we know how incredibly lucky we are to have it. And obviously, with the whole health insurance thing in the States, that's massively different. But can you just, I mean, we've mentioned those things a little bit, food as medicine and and food prescription programs. And what you also just said there that I've forgotten the phrase already about the meals. Oh, the medically tailored meals. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what do those things mean for our listeners? Okay. So I'll, I'll do my, I'll make my best attempt at sort of describing them. What I will say is that these programs are largely focused on people that are receiving some form of federal federally funded assistance whether they're SNAP recipients WIC recipients or they're receiving Medicare so over 65 health insurance benefits okay Uh, or I think Medicare also serves folks with I I don't I'm, I'm not old enough to know the ins and outs of it but but um so uh, medically tailored meals are basically meals that meet a they meet criteria to uh, improve heart disease or diabetes or or hypertension. So like they yeah. use the Dash diet to plan meals that meet the standards. Like there's they have a certain level of sodium or below you know saturated fat. Uh, they include a certain amount of fiber. Uh, so I, I would say medically tailored meals. There's companies now uh, that are that's their whole business model is creating these medi- medically tailored meals uh, that are are sold. You would think hospitals and healthcare organizations that provide meals that this would be they would have medically tailored meals, but no, that's not the case. Uh, oh. You go into a hospital and you you would really be shocked at what is served. Mm-hmm. Uh, so hopefully that's like. Uh, I mean, where they will start to really become a main thing. Like if you're in a, I mean, nobody thinks hospital food is any good, but, um, (laughs) but it would be a sensible place to start, wouldn't it? Obviously it would be a good place to start. Yeah, for sure. And then produce prescriptions, uh, is really again, aimed at SNAP participants. So in a lot of these programs, so there's a, a grant program, it's called GUSNIP, the Gus Schumacher nutrition incentive program. And there's funding that's allocated through the government. And they just made an award, uh, you know, I want to say of like $50 million. Yesterday, there was an announcement of in nine different uh, programs that are receiving funding to do these uh, produce prescription programs. And how that works is there is uh, a healthcare uh, arm. So say uh, a diabetes um, program that serves an inner city population that is largely 
you know, meets income guidelines and they run a program for six to eight to 12 weeks and they measure, you know, pre and post doing this and they're, they're basically increasing their purchasing power. So they might give them a $50 or a hundred dollar incentive to buy only produce uh, and they would have designated a designated retail partner or they can shop at farmer's markets. And uh, that helps the, you know, so the, the doctor who is at the diabetes clinic gets to give out a certain number of pres produce prescriptions to uh, for a certain length of time. And then they, they measure it. So it's not like any person out there is just doing produce prescriptions. It's mm -hmm. really focused on people that are uh, meeting certain income guidelines, which, of course, I'm never going to uh, say anything negative. That's great. Like, I think people need to eat more produce. I mean, in my entire career, it's been the same statistic. One in 10 Americans is consuming the, the, the recommended. And I know this is a global phenomena, too. Like, you look at other, the UK, you guys are in the same Absolutely. boat as us. I think we're doing a little bit better, but yeah, I mean, that's shocking. One in 10, isn't it? I mean, it's, it, is, oh. it isn't great here either, to be fair. It's, it's very poor intake of fruits and vegetables, but mm. like the whole system has to change. Like, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that keeps us up at night, right? Registered dietitians, nutritionists, like thinking about like, how do you solve these very complex problems? Like I'm not going to solve it, honestly, but I have spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I worked... Uh, I consulted, you know, so over the past 10 years, although I predominantly worked with av the avocados from Mexico, which, by the way, in the 10 years I've worked for them has seen a 300% increase in consumption. So avocados, there's something to learn from avocados, but that's another whole nother story. As well as being completely de delicious, obviously. Yes, yes. And my favorite brunch so, item. <laughs> but, but so... Um, well, I lost my train of thought, but, um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> you know, produce, produce prescriptions um, is one... I don't think it's the solution. So I had worked for, uh, this is what I was saying, I had consulted for um, a produce prescription, one of the leading organization nonprofits that was doing produce prescriptions. And I developed a curriculum for them to use in these programs when they find a partner uh, and they're doing nutrition education that they, they would have a curriculum that they could utilize to, because that's what's important. You don't just give free produce. Like you can give somebody a whole pile of, produce but if they're not educated about how to use it and nu some nutritional points and uh, incorporating it into their day-to-day -day, you do this for 6 12 10 weeks i mean they're not going to continue to eat that produce item so there's a whole bunch of things like i don't know if i mean i think those individual produce prescription programs they probably do make an impact for when they're they're running but we need systemic change. Like we need school gardens. We need kids to be eating um, fresh fruits and vegetables from very young ages. And in terms of like the SNAP program, I mean, the, the supplemental nutrition program is basically a benefit. You get a certain amount of money per month based on your income. And you can pretty much go and use it on almost any food purchase in the grocery store. You're not allowed to buy prepared foods. You can't buy cigarettes and like cosmetics and that kind of stuff. I mean, it's, you got to buy food. But you can buy, um, you know, Twinkies or <laughs> like there, there's no restrictions. I mean, nothing against Twinkies. They, they can fit, right? 
Yeah. Maybe not. <laughs> uh, but um, there's no restrictions. And so if I was given a magic wand and this could happen overnight, I would probably really overhaul I'm going to get a lot of bad mail from people. <laughs> Go but, for it. What would you but do? I would, I would change the SNAP program. I mean, I, I, I do not. Okay. I've had pretty much no income for six months. I will not qualify for SNAP. Um, I'm not getting, I don't qualify for unemployment, you know, like none of this stuff. But if I was, if I really wanted to help people overall, I would change the SNAP program, make it all based on fresh pro or on produce. It doesn't even have to be fresh. It could be frozen. It could be canned. It could be um, fresh. And I would also include a couple of other like, okay, some protein staples and, you know, some, some calcium rich dairy, you know, or dairy alternatives um, and make it very simple and not like, oh, hey, you can buy whatever you want because the Food is the number one reason we have this $3 trillion worth of healthcare expenditures in the United mm. States. They're diet-related things, diet-related diseases that are mediated, reduced, eliminated by making better nutritious food choices. So, I mean, it's, it's like a crazy, when you think about it, Dr. David Katz, who uh, you may or may not know, but he runs a, a program called Diet ID. And he is a brilliant man. And he wrote a, a, an op-ed on this. I, I want to say it's a few years old, but he, he spoke to this. Like, this sounds bananas. It sounds nuts. I'm using all these healthy words to describe <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah. But it's like you're giving people food. You're giving them free money to buy food. And then they're buying, they don't know enough. They don't have enough tools, education to purchase the healthy stuff. And then it's feeding into this increasing healthcare. Mm. And that's fascinating. And going back to something you said earlier, which really interested me, you said that the word healthy is defined over there. So you would think that there might be some joined mm. up thinking. I'm sure there is lots to discuss, which I don't think we're going to have time for because we've only got time for one or two more questions for you. But in terms yeah. of, you know, that definition of healthy and we're having similar, you know, really interesting, deep discussions in the UK at the moment around this in a way, you know, lots of different, you know, political sort of things coming out about what is healthy and what isn't healthy. Um, so yeah, a bit of joined up thinking might, might help to solve those problems over there. That the conversation about healthy is so... Like we could totally nerd out as nutritionists here about <laughs> yeah. this because the word healthy, avocados didn't qualify as healthy up until 2020. So I worked in the avocado industry. I started in 2014 for the first six years. We couldn't use the word healthy to describe avocados. Mm. <laughs> the federal government, the FDA, although there's, most fresh fruits and vegetables qualify just for the mere fact that they're fruits and vegetables. Uh, avocados did not, and nor did salmon, uh, some other high-fat, um, what we would recognize as healthier foods. And so they had to redefine the definition of healthy, uh, and that you know affects policy and uh, dietary guidelines and all that kind of stuff. But the, yeah. the large... Uh, majority of scientific evidence that the dietary guidelines uh, were initially uh, created upon uh, w showed that foods high in fat 
uh, increased risk for heart disease. And then, you know, science evolves. And now we know that, you know, from the Mediterranean diet and all the health professional follow-up studies and these large epidemiological studies that when you're choosing, you know, the healthier fats, the good or USDA and FDA would never recognize a healthy fat. There is no such thing, they would say. But a good fat, um, one that comes from a plant or is lower in saturated fat, uh, actually doesn't increase your risk for heart disease. Mm -hmm. And so the definition was updated in, I think it it was proposed in 2016. It it took years and years. So 2020, it finally went into a federal ruling. Mm -hmm. So now Mm -hmm. we can use healthy in the avocado industry to describe them. Mm -hmm. But the average consumer, if you say, oh, did you know that avocados are not considered healthy? I mean, it's, it's nuts, right? Like, <laughs> and nuts are healthy too, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, it's, you know, it is. And I think, you know, that's something that's come out a lot in, in what you've said there, Barb, today is, is the complexity. And I guess what you've been really open about sharing is, is the frustration that many nutritionists are feeling in terms of, you know, the goal that needs to be achieved and just, you know, that kind of desire to connect those dots and I guess the frustration at not connecting them and, you know, and I guess it's, you know, it's within our responsibility as a profession to to keep going and to keep thinking, okay, how do we absolutely drive for change and connect those dots and and also move with speed you know the complexity that's there science is constantly evolving how do we make sure that things are moving at the same pace across the policy across the industry across you know the the food environments that people are experiencing and and none of that is simple so you know it's it's how do we keep up our energy to to keep chugging away and doing you know bits and bits and bits and and I guess you know it all comes back to collaboration is like nobody on their own is going to be able to do that new sector on their own new company on their own new policy maker on their own it's 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 how do we connect all of that evidence base and as well that lived experience that that, you know that practice going right back to your experience with school food and then your experience with the college students and in the supermarkets you know all of that um needs to come together at some point so um, I guess, you know, you know, sorry, carry on. No, what I would, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I would say that one of the big problems is across the board, and I know you you probably feel the same pain in the in the UK. People like think of dietitians that they're working in hospitals. But if there was a dietitian in every food-related organization, and again, not all dietitians have, we do have very similar training across the board, like every registered, like I think our educational uh, preparation needs to change a little bit for the times, but we all have sort of standard education in the in the United States. But I'm seeing now, like, uh, of course, I'm looking at a lot of jobs and a lot of companies, and there's big food influence influential companies and i'm not talking about the the big food nestle's and general mills and the pepsico they all know that they have to have registered dietitian nutritionists rdns they have teams of them but you look at big companies like instacart here in the united states 
there is not a credentialed health professional in the entire organization. There's another organization that I've been watching, Every Table. I mean, it's, it's, it's a wonderful organization. Their fo total focus is on, on proving, improving food deserts. Not a credentialed health expert on the entire, in the entire organization, meaning a registered dietitian nutritionist. So part of that is that there's not awareness or knowledge that registered dietitian nutritionists, that we, we come in a lot of different forms. Yes, we have standardized training, but we can make such an impact in e-commerce and in marketing and in building trust and and our advice like i don't have a job with the avocado industry this year which is totally crazy to me and that's because at the very top of the organization they're not seeing that i'm related to dollars and cents but the number one reason people purchase avocados is for health reasons and yeah i worked for them for nine years so i think i played a role in that but I see this across the board, like registered dietitian nutritionists really should be everywhere. They should be in every organization. They, and, and how do we change that? I mean, I feel like I'm beating a drum and nobody's listening. You're listening. <laughs> you folks We're are listening. listening. Yeah. But and, you know, we completely agree from, from our side, you know, we're obviously one of the reasons we set up Nutrition Talent was that, you know, that sheer passion for our profession and, you know, the, the feeling that exactly that, that, you know, what we can do as a collaborative group of professionals, both nutritionists and, and dietitians, uh, you know, is absolutely huge. And obviously we do believe health can equal good business. And I think obviously that is something that a lot of organisations are getting on board with, but there are still some that that could do better or could understand that a bit more. So I think... Yeah. You know, between us, we can all work on that. Yeah, one of the challenges that we have to step up to within the profession, and, and, and it's something that is working well for us within Nutrition Talent, is being that connector. It can be such a complex environment for companies who don't or haven't had access to those qualified experts. How do they find the right qualified expert? You know, I, I constantly think you know I know absolutely nothing about cars and I rely on people to tell me who's the good mechanic you know and we're very lucky with systems like that you can find the right person through a friend and through a recommendation but you know going back to you know what was the gap why did we set up nutrition talent it was exactly that it's what is the way that we can help people who don't have access to that expertise but want it make a start in accessing it because it is there um you know, we, we take it for granted that it's there. I think it's what is our role in, in connecting the experts to each other and to identifying where there are gaps and, and ultimately working our hardest to fill those gaps because, you know, that's you can see it as an obstacle, but it is absolutely an opportunity. Yes, I completely agree. There has to be, if it's, you know, there has to be a, a goal at the head of whatever the organisation, be it a commercial one or be it an NGO or, you know, whatever sector, there has to be an endeavour towards health and a goal there. Otherwise, it really is like pushing stuff uphill. Um, but once that's there, it, it's it's getting the right person in that can work in whatever contact, context that organisation works. And you've shown throughout your whole career how you can apply your nutrition expertise in lots of different contexts to, to you know, to bring value. So th that's definitely something that we hear a lot from our profession is, you know, the challenge of demonstrating value is something that I th that I think is shared. But you know, there are so many 
opportunities we've got to see them as opportunities you know to mm-hmm. get in and make those differences and there, there are some incredible experts out there um so certainly if there are any anybody listening who's thinking how do i connect to fabulous people like you barb and and, and others within our profession you know, there are there are places to go and we are more than happy to, to set up those introductions if there are listeners that, that are they're looking at that sounds like a plug but it's it's kind of my my passion is you know that conduit and, and that collaboration um to well, make the difference you know like listening to your podcast honestly i'm a i am i'm not just your target audience but even i was inspired uh i love the podcast interview with um nilani um Shrift Barthen from, I'm butchering her name, from Sainsbury. I mean, that is maximizing the potential of a nutrition expert in a food-related organization. And in, in here in the United States, where I see the opportunity to change the, the future, so there's, there's, uh, there was a 2020 article in the European Journal of Clinical Nutrition, by the way, I'm sure you know, the, um, the time is right for ESG plus nutrition, evidence-based nutrition metrics for environmental, social, and governance, ESG investing. And there is a ton of venture capital. I, I want to say there was like, it was, there was like three, uh, no, that I'm not, I don't quote me, but it was billions of dollars that has been invested in in these ag tech startups here in the United States. And it's they really focus on the sustainability part, the environmental. And I think, okay, like, and I even posted a post on my LinkedIn about this. Like, even if you look for jobs, there's tons of sustainability officer jobs. What could be more sus- necessary and a need for sustainability than human health? Like, we need to improve human health to sustain the planet and the and earth and uh and the you know gosh like why isn't there more attention to having nutrition officers you know the the registered dietitian nutrition credential in in these job posts that yeah i've applied for some wacko some jobs where i'm sure like if there was an actual real human looking at my resume would be like wow yeah this would be a great person but unfortunately it goes through a computer and it's like, oh, well, yeah, this person doesn't have the right titles and things that match up. But, uh, you know, the venture capital here in the United States, these companies that are investing in food startups, they really need to focus on health. And I know I'm going off the tangent, but, you know, Ozempic, the GLP drugs are huge right now. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be a fallout. I mean, there there's no magic pill people like you can't just take a pill or eat one thing and solve all your health issues you need to change your behavior and so i just see a, see a huge opportunity in the future again it's like through the cycles of my my almost uh, you know 30 almost 30 year career like yeah i'm going to i have an opportunity maybe to attract or or work with people that are now falling off the GLP, they're saying 7, 7% of Americans will be on the GLP drugs by 2030. Gosh, really? I mean, that's, that's huge. That's a ridiculous number. Mm. And so there's some chatter that the food industry, big food, is worried that they're going to stop. They're going to be spending less money on groceries. Well, 
I, I really don't think that's going to happen. I mean, if, if you're eating, you're going to buy healthier food maybe, but, um, and, and so, yeah, so there's like this push for snack producers to improve their, well, yeah, this is, I, I don't think that's the, the solution is reformulating mm. your products, but I do see that the food industry is changing and it's consumer pressure. You know, people want less processed, which I know that's a whole nother conversation we could have, whether processing, it's the highly processed, you know, the high sugar fat, uh, sodium things that are the problem. Um, but um, anyway, I'll let you, I'm sure you have a like <laughs> final question for me, but. Well, I think we better had to go to a final question. It's been a fascinating conversation, Barb, so thank you. Um, obviously, we, we have talked a lot about some of the challenges and we do have some shared challenges across the pond, but also some shared opportunities, of course. But I just think that's, you know, we like to end our podcast on a positive note. So, you know, can you tell us, you know, what, what are you most excited and, and hopeful about for the future? Oh, I mean... There's lots of things to be optimistic and and look forward to. I think this whole realm of food technology and artificial intelligence, like being able to connect like diabetes, like blood sugar monitors with gut microbiome, with biometrics and, you know, helping people. I mean, we're just on the beginning of this food tech, you know, using technology and, and artificial intelligence, we're always going to need the humans of nutrition, right? For, um, you're, you actually just quoting basically one of our um, podcast episodes from earlier in the series <laughs> when we, we talked about exactly that. So yeah, that was the so episode with, with Marcus Strip for anybody that wants to listen back. Fascinating topic. Well, have a listen to it. So that, oh, that there you go. Have a listen to that one. <laughs> so, so I think technology, there's huge opportunity and I kind of feel like that is going to be in the, this next phase of my career that mm. is, and that also feeds into the ESG reporting. Like I see grocer, like online, well, grocers in general, and people are buying groceries online and there's really a dearth of information about nutrition and health information. Like, yes, they have nutrition facts there, but like grocers could do such a better job with helping guide consumers with, okay, you have the nutrition facts label, but people don't know how to use nutrition facts labels, like yeah. to change their, their outcomes or treat heart disease or diabetes. And so building, um, guidance, uh, nutrition ratings or that kind of thing that, that helps, uh, people make better selections when they're shopping online, I think is a huge opportunity. Um, you know, most people have no consciousness of this at all, but having worked in the fresh produce industry, uh, for avocados, you would be astounded, like going to, so there is an international, uh, fresh produce association, which by the way, they don't have a registered dietitian nutritionist at the top of that organization, which is like bananas to me as well. But, um, if you go to that fresh produce expo and I, and there's one in Germany every year as well, but you go to these fresh produce conferences and there's a ton of innovation. Like there's colorless strawberries out there. There's pink blueberries. I mean, the fresh produce industry is just going crazy, like with innovation. And it's, it's shocking to me that consumers are not 
gobbling up more fresh produce. Like there's so much innovation happening there and they're trying to find out the tastiest apples and, mm-hmm. and you know, the sweetest citrus and this kind of thing. And, and largely, you know, they just go unnoticed. But that is exciting to me. Mm-hmm. I love to see that innovation. Um, I think I, I am predicting that food investing moving forward, they will start consulting a registered dietitian, nutritionist, qualified um, nutritionist to help with advising on these things. I have been immersed, no pun intended, uh, in the seafood industry, the aquaculture industry, because it's fascinating to me. People, just like produce, people don't consume adequate omega-3s. And where do you get those omega-3s? You get them from fatty fish. (laughs) Uh, And so, uh, you know, most recently I consulted with a land-based salmon farmer, but, uh, you know, so there's exciting stuff happening, uh, I think, in the United States because it is such a big, okay, I'm going to relate this back to the UK. In the EU, you're used to things being grown in greenhouses. You have a sensitivity and and knowledge of that. Like to, to have uh, cucumbers in, in the UK in December, you know, they were grown in a greenhouse or, or a tomato, but in the United States, I don't think people realize that a lot of produce is actually, you know, a large majority of the produce in the United States is grown in California. Leafy greens are grown in Arizona most of the year. And then the rest of the year, it comes from greenhouses in British Columbia, Canada, or Mexico that's in the ground. And and so there's just this lack of, um, n- not that knowing that really makes a difference, but um, you know the big ag tech boom here in the United States was all these leafy green companies. I thought it was really fascinating to see all of these leafy green growers popping up in New York City and uh, you know in, in industrial areas and thinking to myself, Who's eating leafy greens? Like who's eating salads? Like do they know something I don't know? Because one in ten Americans are are eating that recommend, and you're spending billions of dollars investing in this ag tech. Like <laughs> so anyway, um, I think there is. I am optimistic that there's going to be more registered dietitian nutritionists in all of these organizations, and they're going to be playing uh, more important and high profile roles in these big organizations that are changing the food system, they, they need to, I mean, I'm not the only, I mean, there are tons of registered dietitian nutritionists like myself that have insane business acumen experience that have done a lot of things. Yes. We've not been category managers or brand managers or marketing directors. Maybe some of us have been, uh, there's probably a whole bunch of them that have been, but, um, you know, if I was going to give any advice to future dietitians or dietitians that are maybe, say, in their early 20s or even early in their career, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of in the, I'm not in the sunset yet of my career. I'm probably no. in like the midday of my career, but I'm, I can't go back and take a job as a, as a, to learn to be a category manager or a brand manager, um, I'm not wanting to replay anything in my career, but if I was starting out again, I would probably go work in a, a, a big food company and uh, get that brand manager on my resume 
so that or marketing director or associate marketing director, whatever, so that I could then go pursue a job with some food, big food mm. company. I mean, it's I often, yeah, it's, it's sometimes some of the, you know, advice that we do give to people that, you know, the, that breadth of your career can really open doors later on. Um, but it's fantastic to hear about all those things you're optimistic about. So it's a lovely way to, to end the episode. So just thank you hugely for joining us. It's been fascinating to get the US insight. Um, and there's, there's so much more we can talk about, but we better wrap it up and I will hit the outro jingle. So thank you so much, Bob. Thanks, thank Barb. you for having me. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Humans of Nutrition podcast, proudly brought to you by Nutrition Talent. Nutrition Talent is a consultancy and recruitment company specialising in the provision of nutrition expertise. For more information about us and how we could work together, check out nutritiontalent.com.